This is Made at UCL, the podcast, bringing you closer to the UCL research, answering life's big questions. From engineering to art, healthcare to space exploration, ancient artifacts to the technology of the future. Episode 3, Repurposing. Hello, I'm Susie. Welcome to Episode 3. It's getting to the end of the year, which definitely gets me thinking about new starts, but also looking back over 2019. Fittingly, this episode is about giving things a new life, taking something that served one use and giving it another. Our first repurposing story is about finding a new use for a drug named exenatide. My name is Tom Fultony. I'm a professor of neurology at the National Hospital for Neurology and Neurosurgery in Queen Square. I do clinical research looking at the development of new drug treatments for patients with Parkinson's disease and other movement disorders. Parkinson's disease is the second most common neurodegenerative disease after Alzheimer's. Neurodegeneration is the decline of the nervous system which runs throughout our bodies and such diseases can particularly damage neurons in the brain. The symptoms of Parkinson's are a constellation of slowness of movement together with stiffness and tremor and over time, it's a progressive deterioration in these motor features. Motor meaning movement. But also accompanied by a number of non-motor features, which include difficulty with sense of smell, constipation, bladder and bowel um, upset, um, dizzy spells, fainting, speech problems and this type of thing. Sadly, Parkinson's is a progressive disease, meaning it gets worse over time. Currently, there is medication that can help reduce some of these symptoms but no treatment that stops the disease from progressing. Ideally, you want something to reverse the process and for people to feel better, not just less worse. But any of these effects will be disease-modifying. And the more effective it is at slowing, stopping or reversing the process, the better. In his attempt to find such a disease-modifying drug, Tom has been researching exenatide. This is a drug currently used to treat diabetes, which is a metabolic disorder, So how did it come to be seen as a potential treatment for a neurological condition such as Parkinson's? To answer this question, we need to introduce the true hero of this story. The Gila Gila Monster. The correct pronunciation is Gila Monster. Sorry, Gila Monster. But it's spelled G-I-L-A, so many people talk about the Gila Monster because it lives in the the Arizona desert. Um, I think it comes from a Spanish derivation. And so, you know, for a Parkinson's patient, talking about a Gila Monster is very highly appealing. This is a a small lizard. They're, They're not uncommon. Um, You wouldn't like to get bitten by one, it's very painful. So these animals grow to uh, about 18 inches long. They tend to be striped or spotted in varying colours, browns and some pinks. Um, So it's quite a lurid-looking creature. And they're they're found throughout the the southern United States in, in the desert areas. I have to say, I got a bit excited when I first heard that this little creature was the source of the medication Tom is researching. I knew that some medicines come from plants, like aspirin being found in willow bark, but I had no idea that animals often hold the secrets to treating human diseases. It's not a new thing. Um, Venoms have been looked at over many decades. Um, Heparin, which is a blood-thinning medication, was found in the the venom of the Malayan pit viper, and so is a very commonly used, very helpful drug. However, it's not venom, but the Gila monster saliva that's interesting to us for this story. And that's because... This is a creature that that only eats twice a year. Wait, what? 
that sounds like a pretty sad existence to me. But I suppose if you live in the Arizona desert, you have to make the most of what you've got. Which is why this little lizard could help out people with type 2 diabetes. It has to have a very close control of its own metabolism. And it keeps that control with a protein called exenadin 4 which is found in its saliva. This is um, very close in its structure to a hormone that we produce called GLP-1 or glucagon-like peptide 1. And after we eat a meal, GLP-1 is released from the, the cells of the small bowel. It circulates around the bloodstream and it um, stimulates the pancreas to produce insulin. And the good thing about it is it, it makes high blood sugar normal, but it doesn't make normal blood sugar low. But GLP-1 only circulates for a few minutes. It gets metabolized in the bloodstream. Whereas exendin-4, or the synthetic version of this exenatide, will stimulate GLP-1 receptors and it will continue working for many, many hours. And so this is a way of keeping um, blood sugar well controlled for many hours. And so it's become a licensed treatment for type 2 diabetes. So the Gila monster's adaptation to the scarce resources of the Arizona desert have turned out to be useful for people with diabetes. But it was soon to become clear that this lizard's story wasn't going to end there. It was was perhaps serendipity more than by design that that the neuroprotective properties of exenatide were found. I I suppose it's um, the whole, the background to repurposing drugs. Researchers often carry out scans of drugs that are already licensed to see if they might have other purposes. It's much quicker and more cost-effective than dreaming up and manufacturing a new drug and then later finding out it's too toxic to be used in the human body. A researcher called Nigel Grech from the National Institute for Health in the US was doing this sort of screening on drugs to see if they had neuroprotective effects. By chance, exenadin-4 was one of the compounds he was testing. He grew nerve cells in a culture and exposed them to toxins. And he found that exenadin-4 protects them from these toxins. So this is where we've got involved in doing clinical research, knowing that the drug is safe for the treatment of diabetes patients, knowing that it's got very strong neuroprotective properties in the laboratory. We wanted to try giving it to patients. So we recruited people back in 2010 to the first small open-label trial of using this, this drug. We wanted to press on and see if we could help some Parkinson's patients. And they had good results. They found patients taking exenatide had less motor problems and less cognitive problems than those who didn't take the drug. This led to a second trial funded by the drug manufacturer and the Michael J. Fox Foundation. And we found that, as in the first trial, at the end of a year, patients on exenatide had less um, progression in their motor disability. And what was just as um, interesting and perhaps more important was that even 12 weeks later, when the drug had completely washed out of their system, wasn't detectable anymore in the blood or in the spinal fluid, there was still an advantage in their motor disability. And this distinguished, from some extent, from any of the symptomatic drugs that we already had for Parkinson's disease and suggested that this, this is something that appears to be slowing down the rate of disease progression. If the conclusions drawn from these trials are correct, the effect of exenatide could be life-changing for Parkinson's sufferers. But while it may have been serendipity that brought scientists to this point, it might be that the Gila monster held a clue to this double usage all along. So why this creature only eats twice a year? Perhaps is due to the, the sparsity of, of food supplies in the Arizona desert. When it eats, it eats a large meal and it wants to um, be able to control its blood sugar based on this very um, scarce feeding behaviour. But I think the truth is more than just that Exendin 4 has this role on its metabolism. 
When the Gila monster produces the xenium 4 in its saliva, it appears to have a direct role on the brain, and by stimulating GLP-1 receptors in the brain, then this has an important role in learning and memory about where it has stored food or where it has previously found food and return to them when it becomes hungry months and months later. There appears to be a dual role in this, so there's a link between strict control of metabolism, but also feeding behaviour, learning and memory. So this, this is something that, that, you know, perhaps I'm not the expert on, but the links between metabolism and neurodegeneration are um, intriguing and multiple. This is just one of many examples where doctors and researchers are looking to repurpose drugs of all types. I think it's very important that we do learn from other specialties. So I go to a meeting once a year where cardiologists, neurologists, endocrinologists, um, hepatologists and bone osteoporosis doctors will all um, discuss a, a set of proteins that include exenatide because these drugs appear to have relevant properties that cross specialties. And it may be that we should be thinking more and more about solutions to tissue-specific diseases that may be found by looking at things that have been helpful in other conditions. And the research into exenatide is ongoing, including in cardiovascular or heart and blood-related problems, in hepatitis patients, and for people with the skin condition, psoriasis. As for its effect on Parkinson's, Tom is just starting a third, larger trial over two years. So what we are now looking to do is to definitively prove that this drug is doing more than just masking symptoms. And we are hoping that we first off show that there's the same effect size in one year, but then that effect size continues to grow. And therefore, there's a cumulative advantage of staying on this drug, not just a small benefit which remains fixed with ongoing exposure. And so if we can demonstrate that we have a cumulative advantage year on year, then this will definitively be the first disease-modifying drug for Parkinson's disease. really exciting that the natural world provided the inspiration to create a drug that can have such significant effects, even if the source was rather unexpected. I also met this month with artist Anya McCausland, a senior research fellow at UCL's Slade School of Fine Art, to talk about a paint that she's made from another unexpected material. Anya's interest in pigments began during an artist's residency at Gloucester Cathedral. She noticed little traces of red or ochre colour embedded into the cracks of its walls, which led her to seek out the sources of pigments in paint. From Gloucester, she began looking at the UK from above and soon started work with the Coal Authority, local mining communities and paint manufacturers Windsor and Newton. As a painter, I've been using pigment in paint for a long time. So I'm not so interested in colour for its own sake. I am interested in the material content of colour and its history with human culture. It's always been the materials that are involved in industry that end up being the materials that make paint. 
The pigments that make paint have never been particularly special. They're derived from materials that are very much part of our everyday world. So carbon and iron and chalk, and these are, these are ubiquitous materials. What I discovered really was that a lot of this material had been mined out, that it didn't exist anymore. Part of the journey of finding these colours um, involved using Google Earth. And Google Earth was a means to find places. It became also a way of seeing or scanning the ground from a different perspective. I started to see these orange lakes of colour from above. And that opened up a question of, well, what what's going on in these lakes of colour. These were clearly kind of working industrial sites. They were run by the coal authority and so I, I contacted them and I asked permission to be given access and also to ask them what the processes were that were forming there. In order for mining to take place, they have to be kept dry and workable. Water is constantly being pumped out. When the mines close, the pumps stop and the water levels start to rise. The water that floods the mines gradually began to seep into rivers and groundwater drinking supplies. It started to create problems in particular places where there'd be, they call it an outbreak. Vast quantities of iron oxide would hit the rivers. The pumps have to be switched back on again now. By building these sites, they contain the pollution, but they need to keep the pumps switched on. And it's, it's a legacy, if you like, that goes up, will go, go on for decades. The mine water that's pumped to the surface carries minerals that have been released as the geology has been worked by mining. Those minerals get leached into the, into the water and travel and get pumped up to the surface. So, so that polluted mine water, when it hits the surface, oxidizes. And the oxidization process means that iron particles turn into ochre sludge. And that is the orange color that you can see from Google Earth. I've visited about 40 sites um, over a period of about two and a half years and collected buckets of sludge which was pretty messy and um, I had to refine it a little bit, I had to dry it and grind it, sometimes wash it in my studio to get the to get it into a, into a condition that could then be mixed into a, a paint medium and then turned into paint. But during my PhD my doctorate had a collaborative partner with Winsor & Newton. They gave me some lab space and we systematically tested each of these 40 colours. I began to spend more and more time with five colours in particular and I began also to work with them in my studio in paintings, in making paintings and there was a sense that the landscape was being carried in the colour. Particular qualities of each of these landscapes became evident in the hue and the, the, the optical qualities of the colour but also its sort of material and physical behaviour, its thickness or its density or its brightness or its lightness, it always pointed back to the place that it came from. One of the colours is from the northeast coast, 
just south of Middlesbrough. It's an old ironstone mine that closed quite early, in the, in the early part of the last century. The outbreak happened very recently. Essentially, the beach at Saltburn, Saltburn by sea, was stained with, with this iron oxide um, material. So there's a big community-led campaign to get something done about the, um, about the pollution. I'm hoping that some of those same people will be involved in, in seeing this colour come into being as a paint. But what's interesting about this colour is that it's the brightest of all of the pigments, but it comes from a part of the country that is where the deepest mines are. The landscape there is lit by the sort of reflection off the North Sea, of the light off the North Sea. So the, the whole landscape feels very bright and the colour kind of has some of that kind of brightness in it. And yet it emerges from a very dark part of the landscape. There's this lovely sort of contrast between the darkness and the, and the lightness. The mine water treatment sites are a culturally significant mark in the landscape. They're the only visible reminder of the hundreds of miles of networks of tunnels of coal mines that exist under the ground, that industrial wasteland that we don't see anymore. There is a, a very much changing discourse around the history of mining. And, you know, yes, the history of the miners' strike is a distant memory in most young people's or most people's minds. And, and yet, there are communities with whom this is very much uppermost in their memory. This material is a conduit to talk about that, but to talk about it with a different set of framings. And rather than it being a sort of historical look back to the particularities of and the difficulties of mining history, to look back at it from a sort of angle of regeneration, partly, I mean, sort of an emotional regeneration on one level, but also an environmental regeneration. And yet to not overlook or oversee the value of a of, of historical industry for the communities that worked in it. It's a colour that connects with the imagination because it's a colour that comes from uh, something unexpected. But it's the carrier of what is the underpinnings of a particular kind of moment, which has an important resonance in terms of where we are environmentally, how we are thinking differently about the environment and about ecology and about sustainability. This is a genuinely sustainable colour. It's not going to be mined out. It'll be produced as a waste material for decades, for even hundreds of years. The site is there as a a record of that place and time and process. Anya is continuing work with these organisations and communities on events throughout 2020 that will see the paints made and the sites opened to the public. To keep up to date with when they take place, visit our website for Anya's details. We've also got some wonderful pictures of the ochre and the sites themselves for you to see. 
One of the things I really enjoy about making this series is finding connections across all the many departments at the university. I find that themes come out or words get repeated in ways I couldn't predict. Tom's work on Xenotide seems to me a great example of how the natural world can help us understand how our own bodies work and how we can use that knowledge to stop some of the world's most damaging diseases. And Anya's work clearly has the earth, landscapes, cultural history and sustainability at its heart. Our final story follows this thread, but this time in the engineering department, where researchers are exploring ways of reducing our impact on the planet. Hi, I'm, I'm Paul Hellier. I'm a lecturer here in the mechanical engineering department at University College London. Paul is a specialist in engines and fuels. I get to try out unusual things that we haven't thought about before, basically burning unusual things that people haven't tried burning before. I really love burning things. But, uh, <laughs> I went to visit his lab to find out about his research with a company called BioBean. It was the idea of a guy called Arthur Kay and a, and a colleague here in uh, UCL. They saw that there's this great opportunity. All of these, these coffee grounds, people drink their coffee and then they chuck the coffee grounds in the bin and it goes to landfill where it slowly decomposes and it produces methane, which is a really bad greenhouse gas. So they thought, well, what if we went around and collected it up and then we try and turn it into something useful? That was the birth of BioBean, which turns waste coffee grounds into two different types of fuel. Biofuel for engines and solid fuel for wood burners and heating. And Paul is making and testing the biofuel here at UCL to make it as efficient and safe as possible. Yeah. I brought a rather cool. sad-looking okay, cup so of waste coffee grounds from the cafe on site into Paul's lab, uh, okay. with the thought that maybe he could put it into some of his fancy machines and turn it into fuel. Yeah, yeah should we take well, our stunt coffee? Yeah, okay. Let's take our stunt coffee, so that it knows what fate awaits it. Of course, it's not that simple. But Paul did take me on a tour of the lab, which is underground in UCL's Roberts Building. It's a bit of a maze of offices, large hunks of metallic equipment and side rooms filled with test tubes and extraction fans, all connected by long blue corridors that all look very much identical. We bumped into the occasional student wearing the obligatory lab coat, and as he showed me around, Paul explained each of the stages that the coffee grounds go through before being tested in the engine. Cool, yeah, so shall we say the first thing that would happen when we, when we had a sample of the coffee grounds come to us is that we'd want to find out how much water was present in the coffee grounds. So the oven is just around here in the furnace room. We showed our little espresso cup of waste grounds, the oven that would be used to dry them out. It's just a big industrial oven, much like you would cook at home. And so we'd leave it in here for five or six hours and we'd come back and always and we would check to see uh, at what rate the moisture was disappearing. And we tested out different coffee grounds from different sources, some from industrial sources, so from the people that make instant coffee, some from cafes, and then they have different, different particle sizes. They come with different amounts of water and we characterise all of those so that we knew what we were dealing with before we got to the point where we tried extracting some fuels. Coincidentally, here is some coffee oil following the extraction process. So we can take this with us on our journey. It's almost like, here's one I made earlier, right? Exactly, yeah. <laughs> this is the end, well, one of the end products that we'd get from that. So it goes from like soil, coffee looking soil, to soil sludge. Soil sludge, Liquidy yeah. Sludge. Very solid coffee. soil cool. sludge. Yeah. Great. The way in which you get the oils out of the coffee grounds is quite a lot like making a cup of coffee. To get the oil out of the dry coffee, they use something called a Soxlet apparatus to make a dodgy cup of coffee with solvents like ethanol or hexane. So you wouldn't want to, to drink what you make. But what it does, though, is it takes away some more of these oils that are held inside the coffee grounds that we're interested in turning to a biofuel. Paul has two main goals in his work with BioBean. 
the first is to make the process as efficient as possible. The other key thing that they're working on is reducing the impact that the biofuel has on human health. To do this, they need to know the quantities of particulates and harmful gases that each type of coffee is likely to produce. Down another corridor and through another door, okay, so in this lab, Paul showed us a pyrolysis furnace. Which we can heat up to about 1500 degrees C and we use that to replicate what goes on inside an engine. So they run the fuel through the furnace where, like in an engine, it's hot enough that the oxygen can attack the nitrogen. It can oxidise the nitrogen. And so you end up with NOx, which is NO or NO2. And then it gets emitted in the exhaust and it can have health effects. It can, it can affect the respiratory system. It can help form ozone at low levels and can cause acid rain. And so we might be cutting greenhouse gas emissions, but we, you know, we don't want to be inadvertently making air quality in places like London worse and you know, aggravating people's immediate health. It's a really tough question when you go to, like, you know, to a meeting or a workshop and you say, well, what should we prioritise? Should we prioritise global climate change and preventing that? Or should we focus on people's immediate public health it's it's tricky you want to do both and it's it's difficult to to prioritize one over the other that's why at each stage paul's team are testing the different coffee oil solutions so that they can find the one that is the most efficient and the cleanest in terms of harmful emissions to do this they need to know exactly what compounds are in each oil that they make because the composition of those oils the type of oils how large those molecules are how saturated or unsaturated they are has a big impact on how they perform inside an engine how efficiently they'll burn as a fuel now they know exactly what is inside their oil they're almost ready to put it into their engine for the final series of tests the only problem is that often these oils are too thick which runs the risk of breaking the engine or at the very least makes them wasteful so there's one final process which has a wonderful name that I'm still not sure I can pronounce. Wait, trans... trans Transesterification. So when you esterify anything, it's the act of turning an acid into an ester. So it makes it a smaller molecule. So it can take something that's really thick and viscous like this and make it a lot less viscous. So a lot more runny and so a lot easier for the engine to inject. So after drying, extracting, pyrolysizing, categorizing and transesterifying... I'm not sure all of these are real words... The Ways Coffee Grounds becomes a nice flowing oil, which is finally ready to be put into an engine. It's been used for many years in things like black cabs, it's been used in transit vans. It's been raised up from the ground and modified to allow the researchers to control exactly how much fuel is going in, and to measure how that fuel changes as it's passed through the engine. There's electrical clamps, metal cylinders with bits of blue roll stuffed inside, pipes coated in foil, tanks and caps and dials. On one side of the room, there's a window that overlooks the engine. And on the other side of that, there's a whole row of computer screens where students and researchers sit and monitor everything that's going on when the engine is running. So we would fill up our coffee biodiesel in this system, seal it up, and so we could try out different biodiesels, different... We, could, we did try the coffee oil before we'd done the transesterification to see how helpful that was in reducing things like particulates. And so then we get all of this data, we log data from it continuously, we have lots of emissions analyzers. So those are the kinds of things that we look at when we, when we test these fuels. And the good news is that after all this, they've got a working biofuel. It's good, it works. Uh, it's quite similar to other biodiesels. But what's really exciting about it is it's a waste stream that we're taking and we're getting a second use out of it. It's not something that's been cultivated directly to make a fuel. It's something that people normally throw away and we're recovering some useful energy out of it. This is really important. Using waste coffee grounds is very different to other biofuels because they aren't being grown specifically to be used as fuel, taking up land to be grown and using up energy to produce. Instead, they're a waste product that exists already, and if they went to landfill like usual, 
they'd be letting off CO2 and methane as they decompose. If we're going to solve the global climate crisis, we need to be reducing how much we burn fuels at all. But this is a step away from fossil fuels, which is a step in the right direction. I think that's the only way we're going to tackle all these you know, issues of sustainability, cutting fossil carbon emissions, is we have to be inventive and take things that we wouldn't normally think of as being useful as a source of energy and saying, well, this isn't a waste, actually, it's a useful energy source, tying up all of those kind of different process streams. That's really exciting and really fun and really important. Do check out BioBean if you want to get your hands on some of their solid fuel for your fireplace this winter. As with our other stories, links are on our website. And that brings us to a close for 2019. Thanks for joining me this episode, moving from old purposes to new. We'll be back in the new year with more research breakthroughs for your ears. Made at UCL, the podcast is produced by me, Susie McCarthy. The executive producer is Nina Glathwaite. Mixing support from Mike Woolley. We'd like to thank all our researchers for welcoming us into their labs and offices. Hashtag Made at UCL is a campaign that brings to life disruptive thinking from UCL. Research presented in this episode was nominated and selected because of the impact it has made on everyday life and society. This episode is brought to you from UCL Minds, events, lectures and podcasts open to everyone. 